Hey, small town fam. This is Paul Holes. Make sure you subscribe to The Briefing Room with Detectives Dan and Dave. Season two is out now. Subscribe now and thanks. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, small town fam. How are you guys doing? I hope you're well, and I hope you're doing lots of stuff. Today, we bring you another gem from Joe Kenda. In this episode, he talks about two different murders from his long career as a homicide detective. There's a lesson in never losing faith, and we get a peek behind the curtain at Joe, the man, the man behind the badge, which I always enjoy. So, please settle in for Backlash. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities as well as the locations of these crimes out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, I am so pleased to tell you that I have the usual suspects. I have Detective Dave. Greetings, Daniel. Greetings, Yardley. Greetings, sir. Greetings. Thank you for coming. And I have Detective Dan. Hello there. Hello. So good to see you. Great to be here. (laughs) And... Small Town Fam, we're super excited to welcome the one and only Joe Kenda. Hello. How are you? I'm so well. Thank you. So Joe is on Zoom. We're all in different places because everybody's still locked up in their houses. But I can see him. And it's sort of like a little outing. It feels like an outing. It's like having a new friend in your house. Joe, we're so thrilled to have you. And... I'm going to stop talking and just let you take over and tell us what you have for us today. It's a case involving two family members, two sisters. A sad case. They're always sad. This particular one begins as a true mystery, but they always do. You have a whodunit and followed by a who is it, and uh, so on. We get a phone call in the middle of the morning on a weekday from a family who lives in Pueblo, Colorado. Pueblo's a city about 40 miles south of Colorado Springs. The caller reports he wants to return his grandchild to the child's mother, that he is the father of the husband, 
the husband and wife are separated, and he has this grandchild for the weekend, the father-in-law, and he wants to bring the child home, and he can't get the child's mother on the phone. He's tried for a couple days. He can't reach her any time of the day or night. No one answers the phone. So he and his wife drove up there that morning to her home in a middle-class neighborhood, very quiet neighborhood in Colorado Springs, and sees her car in the driveway, and all the shades are pulled and the doors are locked, and it doesn't look like anybody's around. And he's very concerned, very concerned. So they send an officer for what's called check the welfare, that there is some concern about maybe the person is ill, maybe they've died, who knows what happened to them, maybe they're in this house, maybe they're not. So an officer arrives, and he finds a window in the back of the place that's open. So he raises it, and he crawls in the house. He goes to the back door to open the door for his partner and stops dead in his tracks because sitting on the floor in the kitchen is a 30-year-old white female wearing shorts and a halter top, sitting with her back up against the cabinetry, her legs spread, no shoes, and she has multiple gunshot wounds to the chest and the head. She's been dead for a couple of days. He opens the door, lets the other officer in. They draw weapons. They go check the house. In the living room, they find another female, a little older, also early 30s. She's face down on the floor in the living room. She has her purse over her arm, her car keys in her hand, and is wearing a jacket. And she, too, has multiple gunshot wounds. They appear to be small caliber. Nothing is disturbed. Nothing is out of place. They find expended casings in small piles where obviously someone reloaded a revolver, two revolvers, because there are 12 casings in each pile. When you reload a revolver, do you have to take something out of those chambers? Yes. When a bullet is fired, what remains in the cylinder is the cartridge, which contained the powder charge. The slug is gone because it's passed through the barrel and to the target. The expended casing has to be removed, and in a modern revolver, if you open the cylinder, there's an extractor rod in the center of the cylinder. You push the extractor rod, and it lifts the six casings out, and they fall. Then you load six new live rounds in the gun and proceed. Got it. There are 12 of these on the floor, and there are 22 long rifle, small caliber. Is that a different gun than would take the casings? I'm sorry, I don't know about these things. No, so 22 long rifle is, say you have a 38 caliber bullet, a 40 caliber bullet, 45 caliber bullet. 22 long rifle is a type of bullet. Okay. 0.22 inches in diameter, hence 22. It's small. Long rifle, they make a long, a short, and a long rifle. It's just a different size of the bullet. But to have those in a revolver is relatively rare. They do make 22 caliber revolvers, but they don't make a lot of them. At any rate, that's what he finds. So, of course, they call yours truly. We show up. These girls have been dead for probably four days in this house. The one in the kitchen is the sister of the one in the living room. There are two sisters. The one in the kitchen, whose first name is Carla, Carla is recently divorced and had moved there to live with her sister a few months before. And the sister who's in the living room, her name is Mona. Mona resides in this house with her husband, Raymond, and a five-year-old girl, their child. Mona agrees to accept Carla to live there because Carla literally has been kicked out of her house by her husband in a nasty divorce. So Carla moves in, and Mona and her husband, Raymond, agree that she can live there. 
Raymond is an electrician. He works for a local electrical contractor, very successful, hardworking, moving up the ladder in this company, very well thought of by the management and so on. Kind of quiet, keeps to himself, but they like him a lot. Raymond's the husband. But they have gotten into arguments in the recent past over the fact that Carla is a little bit of a handful. Raymond and Mona are arguing about Carla? Correct. It turns out that Carla, when she moves in, she brings a suitcase of clothes and a suitcase of high heels, another suitcase of makeup, and Carla is inspired by the light fantastic. Mona, on the other hand, is a housewife. And Carla and her get into discussions about Carla saying to Mona, Mona's life is boring, and Carla can take her out to the local nightclubs and show her a good time. Raymond doesn't like this idea very much, and they have heated discussions about it. Carla decides that this is time to strike, and her and Mona go out a couple times. Raymond is incensed. Carla's response, this is all reconstructed after the fact, is that how dare he interfere with Mona's life. After all, he's just her husband, and he shouldn't treat her that way. So Raymond decides to move out, and he does. And he's been gone for about a month or so. Now Carla and Mona have the place to themselves, and occasionally the child goes to the grandparents, thus freeing Mona and Carla up to do whatever it is they're going to do and have a house to do it in. So that's what's going on. So then the next question becomes, all right, so did they encounter someone in this nightclub routine that winds up angry with them and winds up doing this to them several days ago? We're uh, standing there. This is the middle of the morning. There is a large crowd because it's daytime and people are up and about. And a guy stops one of my detectives and says, excuse me, is something wrong with Mona? And the detective says, you know her? Well, I met her recently in a bar. Come with me. So we start talking to Mr. Lounge Lizard about how it is he knows Mona. He is evasive. He is frightened. Frightened's normal. Evasive, not so much. He don't want to talk about how he knows Mona. He only danced with her a couple times, you know. And uh, Carla's quite a good-looking woman, which she was. More interested in Carla than he was in Mona. But you know Mona. You said, how is Mona? You didn't say, how is Carla? You said, how's Mona? One thing leads to another. He finally admits that, well, they did have an affair. He and Mona had an affair? He and Mona. More than once at his place of residence. So what happened? How'd that stop? Well, she didn't want to see me anymore. Hmm. That make you angry by some chance? Oh, no, no, no. It didn't make me angry. So you get rejected a lot. Is that why it doesn't make you angry? Uh, we're trying to push him around a little bit and see what he does. But he doesn't do much. He just says, no, no, just one of those things. You know, just didn't work out. Okay, whatever. So he's still interesting, but he's not necessarily anything more than that. But he is certainly someone who presented himself to us, which is always interesting. Why did you do that? Why would you not remain out there in the weeds? Does that lift some of the suspicion from him? It does. No, it does to some degree. It lifts it some degree because he could have remained silent until somebody pointed him out to us. He didn't. He came forward. He was nervous and evasive. People are when they get confronted by the policemen who are not wearing a uniform. 
The suit scares people. The uniform they expect to be talked to, but a guy in a suit seems like trouble to most people. There's something more here that could really get me in a jam, and so they get nervous, they get evasive. All right. So I kind of don't like this guy particularly well, but he's better than nothing, because other than that, we have nothing. So we go start hitting these bars, and we go to those bars that night, where they hang around. Everybody knows Carla. Oh, my. Carla is well-known. Carla's party girl, life of the party, always dressed to the nines. And her sister, Mona, is kind of like pretty quiet and not too forward and that sort of thing. But Carla keeps dragging her around the dance floor with her and putting her with people and so on. Everyone talks about Carla. Very few people talk about Mona. No one knows of anyone who has gotten into any kind of confrontation with them or any kind of arguments or anything about Carla or Mona together or apart. So we don't find anybody in this crowd, although they all know them, nobody says there's any problems between her, her sister Mona, and the crowd. Okay. So we have at least one guy who's uh, slept with Mona. And there are probably a few others, but that's not against the law. Consenting adults. So the next question is, who would not consent to that? Raymond probably wouldn't consent to that. So, you know, obviously you do what every homicide detective does. You march through the known acquaintances. You march through the marginal acquaintances. You come up with nothing that looks promising, and you return to the inner circle. Who in this inner circle would have a motive to kill them? Who'd want to kill Carla? Well, if I was Raymond, I might consider that since his life was going along just swimmingly until Carla shows up and all of a sudden things start to go south and his life changes in a way that he's not appreciative. So he's talked to co-workers of his the next day. This is two days after the discovery. Tell me about Raymond. Well, Raymond is a devoted father, loves that child, and he loves his wife. And he has purchased seven acres of ground in the Black Forest, which is a suburb of Colorado Springs, very nice area, called the Black Forest because densely covered in trees, evergreen trees. Beautiful place. And his plan, at some point in his life, is to build his dream home on this seven acres. He's going to start small, buy the ground first, then move up and save his money and so on. So he's got a plan. Everything's fine. Then Carla arrives with her kit. And Raymond's personality starts to change at work. He starts to tell people, My sister-in-law is here, and she is a piece of work. And one thing leads to another. And then he's openly hostile toward her and finally tells his co-workers that he can't deal with this. He just cannot deal with his sister-in-law. And it's changed his wife and how she behaves. He's incensed by that. And he decides that he's going to move out. So he moves out. And he's from Pueblo, which is where his parents live. And he doesn't want to live with his parents, but he knows a guy in Pueblo who's going to take an extended vacation. And the guy says, how about if you watch my house for me while I'm gone? And you can just stay here, rent-free, drive back and forth to work. It's only a 40-mile run up the interstate. You can do that easily. And it saves you a ton of money and it protects my house. So he agrees. So we locate this individual. He's still gone. He's staying in a campground in Texas. How do you know Raymond? Well, he went to high school with them. They've been friends a long time. Okay, where's this house you own? So he tells us. 
Anything we should know about the house? What do you mean? Was there an alarm system? What's going on? They said, well, I do have an alarm system because I have an extensive collection of guns. Oh. Oh. Really? You got any twenty-two revolvers? He said, well, yeah. He said, I got two of them. In the 1960s, Smith & Wesson made a gun called a Model 17. It's a medium frame, K-frame they call it, revolver, six shot and 22 long rifle. They were rare. A lot of 22 revolvers, but normally they're nine shot, very few are six shot. But this was designed to look like a 38 caliber revolver, but it fired 22 caliber ammunition. And that's a bigger bullet than 38? No, it's a smaller bullet. Smaller, okay. But the gun is pretty substantial looking. You look at this gun, you think it's pretty big, and it's got to have big bullets, and it doesn't have small bullets. Okay. They were designed initially as a target pistol, that you would learn how to shoot a handgun by firing a gun that had little or no recoil and get accustomed to handling it and sight picture and so on and so on. And they have some level of value. They're not enormously valuable, but they have more level of value than they did when they were purchased. And the guy liked them, so he said, I got two of those. Hmm, interesting. We have 22 caliber extended casings, two distinct piles of 12. The shooter empties those guns into victim one and then empties those guns into victim two, causing him to reload, and then he reloads a third time in the event he may need these during his escape, apparently. You know, what's interesting is in season one, we did 10 Below, where the son shot his parents and was surprised that nobody called police hearing gunshots in the middle of the day. And it could be because people are at work and nobody's in the neighborhood when this happens. But he recalls shooting his parents and then expecting the police to be showing up within minutes and kind of set up fortified positions around the house. In this case, this guy's shot many times in this house, shot two women spread out by minutes or hours, depending on when Mona showed back up at the house. I'm sure he's thinking, I wonder if anybody heard these shots, but a 22 sounds like little firecrackers going off. Pop, pop. It's not a loud bang that you would expect from a revolver or any sort of gun going off. It's pretty muted. Interesting. Yeah. It is. So let's say, for sake of argument, that Raymond has access to firearms of the right size and caliber and type, and he has motive. And he certainly has opportunity. He has keys to this house. Where is Raymond now? Well, it turns out that Raymond hasn't come to work for two days. Has Raymond ever missed work in the past? No. Okay, then. We start looking for Raymond. I suspect, knowing human nature as I do, that if Raymond is our man, we don't know that he is, but it certainly looks like he is. If it's him, and he's never done a criminal thing in his life, which he never has. The enormity of what he's done has come home to him. I think he's going to drive to that seven acres he owns in the Black Forest and eat that gun. Oh. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Small Town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60 day risk free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. Do it. So he sent a sheriff's car out there, because that's out of our jurisdiction. That's in the El Paso County. Sheriff's unit arrives, checks the entire property, roads leading to and from it. Nope, no Raymond. He is driving a pickup truck that belongs to the homeowner. Raymond is? Yeah. It's a uh, pickup truck that the homeowner that asked him to sit on his house owns, told him he could use his truck if he needed a truck. Apparently, Raymond's riding around in this truck because people have seen him in it, but he hasn't been at work. He hasn't been at that house. His parents haven't seen or heard from him, nor did he try to get in touch with his daughter, staying with his parents. He had dropped that kid off, picked her up, and took her to his parents' home for them to watch for the weekend, which was a scheduled thing. It wasn't something unusual. But then he never came back. So they tried to give the kid back to mom. They couldn't get a hold of mom. One thing led to another. Mom is Mona. That's right. So the question remains, where is Raymond? And is Raymond armed? And if he is our guy, he's dangerous. So we put out this information. That Colorado State Patrolman's working in a highway, the interstate highway, and lo and behold, there's that truck, and Raymond is driving it. So they make a felony stop on the vehicle. They bring him out of the truck at gunpoint. On the floorboard of the truck are two .22 caliber revolvers. They are both loaded. In his pockets are 41 rounds of ammunition, .22 long rifle. Raymond is arrested at that point, for two counts of first-degree murder. They recover him and the guns and bring him to me. I sit down and talk to Raymond for quite some time. Raymond says that he went over there to the house to discuss this problem with Carla, and you brought two guns with you. Well, yes, I brought two guns with me. I wanted to scare them. I see. Okay, so you have your guns, yeah, and you drive to the house, yeah, and they're there. Well, Carla's there. Mona's not there. So Mona's not home. No. Okay. So what happens? 
Well, I go in the kitchen. Carla's there, and I sat down, and I told her my thoughts, and she laughed at me. She laughed at you? Yes. She said I was a fool, and then she goes on about how she insulted him and so on. So what happened then, Raymond? Well, I pulled out one of the guns. I bet you did. And what happened then? Well, we struggled over it, and somehow it went off. Somehow it went off? How do you think it went off, Raymond? Well, I don't know. We were struggling over it, and it went off. I see. And she was hit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was hit. She fell down. Well, people do when you shoot them. And what happened then, Raymond? Well, she said that she didn't want to suffer, so I should shoot her some more. Oh, no. And I said, you know, Raymond, I've always found that to be true. When people are hurt, they just can't deal with the pain. And the first thing they demand is to be killed. And he just looked at me. I said, go on, Raymond. Tell me the rest. So, so I, I did. I, I, I shot her. I said, with both guns? No, I just used one. What about the expended casings on the floor? Where'd they come from, Raymond? Hmm? And he just keeps looking at me. I said, all right, let's go on. What happened then? Well, Mona wasn't there. You said that. So what did you do? Did you wait for her? Yeah, I waited. So you sat there with dead Carla and waited for Mona, didn't you? Yeah. So then when she came in the door, what'd you do? Well, I was going to confront her, but that gun went off again. <sighs> really? Same gun, huh? Maybe it's faulty, huh, Raymond? And then the other gun, it went off too, huh? And then he said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Well, fine. You want a lawyer, Raymond? Yes, I, yeah, I've decided I want a lawyer. I said, okay. If I were you, Raymond, I would get two lawyers. I don't think one's going to be enough in your case. So we go to court. We go to grand jury first. We indict him, two counts first-degree murder. Then we go to court. We convict him, two counts first-degree murder. He's sentenced to life in prison to be served consecutively. He served one life term, then he served a second term after the first term. The grandparents, his parents, have that little girl in the court. And she's wearing a beautiful little pink dress and her Mary Jane's patent leather Mary Jane's and her little silk socks. And she is a beautiful child. She's like five years old or something? She's five years old. She walks up to me and says, are you the man that put my daddy in jail? And I said, I am. And she kicked me as hard as I've been kicked in a while <laughs> in the shin, you know. And then her grandmother came over and like she was sorry. Her grandmother sent her over there to do that. But whatever. I didn't. I said, yeah, okay. Now, during the course of that investigation, we uh, also discovered that Raymond had test fired the weapon. He practiced in the backyard. We recovered the slugs out of his targets, target plank. He had a six-inch plank he put up six inches wide in the backyard. 22s didn't penetrate. They were stuck in this thing. It's a piece of oak. And uh, we took it and recovered the slugs and matched those to the slugs in the bodies. So he practiced with the guns before he went up there to do that. Now, part of the issue in Colorado and murder in the first degree is to engage in behavior that is not inspired by your emotions, that you engage in scheme and design. You have a plan, you carry out this plan, you obtain weapons, you practice with the weapons, you load the weapons, you bring extra ammunition, then you drive 40 miles in a truck 
to your former home and carry out your offense. Now, there is certainly sufficient time for the voice of reason to be heard during your 40-mile drive, but there's no question about voice of reason. We are committed. I'm going to kill these women. And he made those arrangements, and that's what he did. And we were able to establish that scheme of design by the physical evidence, by his statements, by the circumstances, by, 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 very clearly what happened. It's never very clear when it begins. It becomes crystal clear when it ends. Joe, so the daughter comes over and kicks you in the shin, and you mentioned that her grandmother sent her over there. The parents, they didn't believe that Raymond had committed these premeditated murders, or? I don't think they ever did believe it. I think they were convinced it was some sort of plot to clear this case, that obviously it was one of Carla's boyfriends or her ex-husband or whatever, and it couldn't have been their Raymond. Right. Well, okay, but you have to say that in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. But emotion doesn't permit that. Right. So interesting. And obviously the little girl then was raised by her grandparents, I'm assuming? I assume. I don't know. Ugh. Just, I mean, she lost both in the commission of that act. Now the child has neither parent. It's a very destructive thing. It's an enormously destructive process, and it affects everyone, sometimes for generations, because they all discuss it forever. Do you remember when Granddad killed Grandma? Yes, I remember. On and on. It just never stops. It's a stone in the pond. It's a ripple effect. It just never ever gets to the other shore. Hey, small town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. Do it. About when did this murder take place in your career? About how long had you been a homicide detective? Mm, eight, nine years. Was there a period in the course of your 20-year career as a detective that seemed busier than another time? Oh, of course. Murder is cyclical in some ways. It's kind of weird. It's like there's a national biorhythm. It's kind of bizarre. But if a murder rate is up in Chicago, it's up in Los Angeles. Oh. 
If it's down in New York, it's down in Chicago. It's kind of weird. It's like up and down. Really? There was an occasion I had six homicides in a week. We didn't sleep for a week. My wife said, you got to get some sleep. I said, great. I'd love to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. You know, it's just incredible. It just happens. And it's quiet for three weeks. Or you get reports of homicides, and it's not. I went to a hospital once. Watch commander calls me from a precinct, and he says, I have a gunshot victim. He's shot in the head, and he's going to die. Okay. Well, nobody does dead like we do, so we'll be on our way. So I drive over to the ER, and uh, I talk to the doc. He says, where's the dead guy? He said, it's him in the waiting room there reading a magazine. What? I said, he's shot in the head. He got shot in the earlobe. Took off his earlobe. I bandaged it, and he's fine. So what was the call about? Well, who shot you? I ain't telling you nothing. I see. I called the watch commander back. I said, hey, the dead guy told me he doesn't want to talk to me. <laughs> Silence on the phone. Yeah, sometimes you get those. <laughs> we'll just palm this off on the detectives, and they'll come here and find out what happened. Right. Joe, did you always want to be a police officer? I did. I had an uncle that was a Colorado State Patrolman, and I was so impressed by him, I named my son after him. My son's first name is Dan, and so is my uncle. It's a good name. When I was a little kid, I was nine years old. Not that little, I guess. We lived in a coal mining town east of Pittsburgh, and my family were coal miners. And my mother and father decided to take my brother and I to the Pittsburgh Zoo. This was a huge deal in the kid world. We'd never been to a zoo. We're going to go see wild animals. So, man, I was like wired. I didn't sleep all night. So off we go to the zoo. Outside the primate house, there's a sign. And it says, around this corner is the most dangerous animal on earth. And everybody rushed around the corner, and it was a mirror from ceiling to floor. And everybody was disappointed. Everybody's like, nah, you know, walking around. I was transfixed. It was an epiphany for me. I thought, well, that's all of us. And I never forgot that. And I found that to be the case. So I said to myself, if I ever got old enough and smart enough, I'd want to be the person who could find people that did that to someone and see that they get punished. Because that isn't right. It killed people. It's just not right. And I've always been a black and white guy. There's no gray with me. There's no 243 shades of gray. It's black <laughs> and white. It's right or wrong. Period. The end. That's just the way it is with me, and it always was. So uh, I was a person drawn to it, and I wanted to do something that would make a difference. And I further wanted to do something that I rose or fell on my own ability. That I would be the one to either do this right or do it wrong and suffer the consequences. But I wouldn't have to do it because somebody told me to do it that way. I wanted to do it and come out successfully with any luck. To be a detective to solve crimes really of any kind, it takes an extraordinary attention to detail and somehow an ability to connect dots that I would say most of us aren't able to connect. What would you say your superpower was in that regard? There's only two skills you need to be a good detective. Only two. First, you need to have a knowledge of the law. You must know what you can do. And more importantly, you have to know what you may not do. You don't stretch the rules. The bad guys do that, not the police. You do it correctly. And the only other skill you need it is an undying sense of curiosity. Somebody made this happen. Who might they be? There is no greater sensation I have found for me at least, that to take 
the shadow and the night that committed this crime and give them a first, middle, last name, a date of birth, and a mugshot. You're not a shadow. You're him. And that was the thing I loved. That's what I absolutely loved, was that moment when it's you. I had a guy once who killed, well, he didn't kill him. He had two sons. They're in a drug business. One's 20, one's 22. They live at home. The parents know what they do, but they just choose to ignore it. They entice a guy over to steal his drugs from him, and they murder him in the basement. The parents wake up with all the commotion, come downstairs, what the hell have you done? Well, we killed this kid. So they conceal it. They use bleach, they clean up all the blood, they roll a dead guy in a blanket, they dump him in the mountains. We don't find him for a week, figuring they're clean. We find him. We trace it back to these people. We have no evidence. He was very good at crime science. He destroyed everything. The dad did. Correct. He is confrontive. He is an asshole. And he is, you get out of my house. I have five lawyers. I'll sue you and I'll do all this stuff. I say, okay, I'll tell you what, my friend. Someday, someday, the truth will be out. And you and I will meet again. Goodbye. (laughs) So we left. Five years later, almost to the day, his brother-in-law gets out of prison, comes to live with them, gets into it with him, and stabs the shit out of him. You know, Denver kills him. Dad, the one that was the architect of this concealment of this murder. Okay. So Dad's in ICU. And I've got his brother-in-law in an interrogation room. And I said, you know, you got a problem here, my man. We're talking uh, third felony for you. That's mandatory life. Is that the convict that's gotten out who's got his third felony on the hook? Yeah, now he is because he just tried to kill this guy. Guy's going to survive, but he's tried to kill him. So I said, so uh, maybe you've got something to trade huh, for the rest of your life. What do you think? And he's just looking at me. Now, he's been around the block. He knows how this works. I said, you know the drill. Tell me about the kid in the basement. Yeah, man. He said, I helped him. He helped him do what? He drove the truck. He took the body up in the mountains, told us where he dumped it, so on and so on. He rolls on everybody, including Mama, because she's part of it too, the mother. So we go get one of the two sons, and he confesses against the other one. Pick up the second one, he confesses against everybody. She was. <laughs> yeah, of course. I go to the hospital. There's dear old dad sitting in the hospital bed. And I walked up to his bed, and I said, Hey, you remember me? Huh? The guy you were going to sue? Remember what I told you? That someday we'd talk again? Well, today's the fucking day. <laughs> and I handcuffed him to the bed. <laughs> ah, to the bed. I said, when you get out of here, and you will get out, the state's going to pay your rent. You're going to have to spend another dime. They'll teach you how to make license plates. You're going to enjoy it. He just turned white as a shit. And everybody went to prison, including Mama. Really? Yeah, for killing that kid. Over nothing, over a bag of dope. It's just unbelievable. Well, Joe, we could talk to you all day. Thank you for making the time to sit down with us. We love your stories, but I gotta say, we especially enjoy getting to know you, Joe, the man, the man behind the badge. So thank you for that. You're entirely welcome, my dear. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, LT. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that was enjoyable. So cool. 
Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soaring Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soaring Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.